You can open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17, we are continuing our study of God's Word this morning in the book of Genesis. And if you are new to the Bible, or if it's been a long time since you have uh, been to church and looked at the Bible, it may be helpful for you if you can find your way there. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's provided on either end uh, of the pews there. It's page, I think it's page 12, 12 or 13, somewhere in there. But the large numbers are the chapter divisions and those small numbers that you'll find throughout the text. Those are the, the verse divisions. And we're going to be looking at the entire chapter of Genesis 17 this morning. But we're not going to have time to focus on every nook and cranny and lift up every rock. We are going to have to make some, we're going to look at it broadly, but we are going to have to look at a few specific things as well that are, that are most important for us. But before we jump into our study of the Word of God this morning, would you join me as we seek the Lord's blessing as we come to his Word? Father, this is your Word. It is not ours. Would you cause our minds to be free of all distractions? Would you allow us, by your grace, to meditate wholly and fully and helpfully on all that your word tells us? That we may know you, that we may understand your word better, that we may receive it gladly. This we ask in the name of our Savior, Christ Jesus, your Son. Amen. Genesis chapter 17. This is Father's Day, and so in celebration of Father's Day, I have a a few of my favorite dad jokes that I came across this past week. This is the thing that we are all looking forward to. So uh, you know when a joke becomes a dad joke, it's when it becomes apparent. Thank you. Thank you. Or you know what kind of uh, car a sheep loves to drive. It is a a Lamborghini. Or how can you find Will Smith in the snow by looking for the fresh prince? Might say yesterday a clown held the door open for me. It was a nice jester. There's just some ammunition for you dads uh, or for kids for you to, to throw at your dads. Those are some of the things that I came across recently that I thought were funny. And today is Father's Day. And whether you are a father or not, we can still be a spiritual father to those around us. Just as Paul was a spiritual father to Timothy, not his real dad. But I am certain that when Timothy thought about who meant the most to him, who was like a dad to him, Paul was right up there on the list. Because when Paul thought of who was like a son to him, Timothy was right up there on the list. We are still able to be spiritual fathers, spiritual parents to those around us. And this text is all about another father. We are told Abraham, he here gets his name changed from Abram to Abraham. Sometimes leading up to this, I've been switching between calling him Abram and falling in the rut of calling him Abraham, even though technically he hasn't been Abraham up till this point, but I hope you'll forgive me and understand why. From this point on, he is Abraham, and really we, we call him Abraham. 
And we are told in this text multiple, multiple times that he will be the father of many nations. And Paul addresses this in Romans 4, 16, where he says he is the father of us all. That is, all who trust in Christ. Abraham is the father of us all. And he is the father for us all because of the unique and special covenant that God makes with him in this chapter. This special relationship that God makes with Abraham. It's a relationship that's not just like a friendship that's casual, that can be entered in and left at any point. This is a lifelong, this is a commitment, an eternal commitment on the part of God and that he enters in with Abraham, that it results in obligations on both sides. The closest comparison we have to this today is the relationship of marriage where we enter into a covenant relationship with one another, binding ourselves together with vows. And that is what we see happening here. There is a binding going on. And and covenants are incredibly important. We saw one back in Genesis chapter 6, and really 6 through 9, God establishes a covenant. And we call it sometimes the the Noahic covenant, the, the covenant that God made with Noah. But really there, it's really God's covenant with the world that he would never again destroy it in the same way that he destroyed it then. But this is a special redemptive covenant. That is, through Abraham, God is promising to establish a line of redemption. That there will be salvation, that there will be rescue. This is, Genesis 17, is a massively important text. So when, a few years ago, when my wife and I and our family, we moved into the home in which we are living, uh, there were a couple of doorways, one in particular that was really narrow. And it was kind of off-center from where it seemed it ought to be. And I wanted to open it up, make the entryway from the kitchen to the, to the living room more open. And so we started doing that. And I quickly realized that it was a load, that, that wall was a load-bearing wall which you can't just start knocking out pieces of wood because then the entire structure of the house gets compromised. That wall in our home runs from one end all the way to the other, all the way down. It is an important wall. You remove it and, and the whole structure of the home will be potentially destroyed. That's what this text is. It begins to be a load-bearing wall that runs, the implications of it run all the way through the scriptures. It is incredibly important. And like any incredibly important passage in the Bible, there is a lot of discussion about what's going on here. And we're we're not going to get into all of that discussion. There will be hints here and there, but we're going to trace this load-bearing text, bits and pieces through the scriptures, before we do that, what I would like to do is I'm, I'm going to read the text through. And as I do, we'll, ta- we'll pause from time to time to kind of unpack the, uh, the passage, those verses that we have just read. And one of the patterns that you're going to see is that God speaks, then Abraham responds, then God speaks again. And then there is this, 
this mention, and I say mention, there is this discussion of this thing called circumcision, which we'll talk about in just a moment, very briefly. And then I'll let parents, you talk about that more with your kids. And you'll have that actually repeated twice in this passage. God talks, Abraham responds, God talks again, and then talking about circumcision. So this this wall, so to speak, this load-bearing wall has two parts. Walk with me as we look through the first eight verses. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant, or we might say, that I may make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, as for me, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations come from you, and your descendants after you in their generations, or throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all of the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. We see that first couple of verses, God speaks. In the third verse, Abraham responds by falling on his face in reverent humility before God. And then God speaks again. There's a second speech of God in the chapter And here in verses 9 to 14, then we see God moving from, this is what I will do. And you'll notice if we were to read through those first few verses again, those first eight verses, it's all about what God will do. I will do this. I will make. I will give. It's all about God and his work graciously acting for us, for Abram. Verses 9 to 14, however, the script is flipped, and now Abraham is given what he must do as part of this covenant. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house, bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house, he who your money must be circumcised. My covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child, who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Here we see God giving Abraham what he must do, but not only him, what his children must do, and not only his children, but his children's children and their children and their children in in perpetuity, generation after generation. And then once again, verses 15 to 22, we see God speaking, then Abraham responding, then God speaking again, and covenant, uh, then circumcision is brought together. 
Verse 15, then God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. That is, he's emphasizing her role now as a princess because he's about to say that kings are going to come from her. She is not just any mother of nations. She is mother of kings. So Sarah meaning princess, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. And I will bless her. And she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael. Remember, Ishmael is Abraham's son through Hagar. We'll, we'll, we'll cover that ground really briefly in just a moment. He says, oh, that Ishmael, my other son, might live before you. Then God said, no, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And as far as Ishmael, I have heard you. This is gracious on the part of God. He owes nothing to Ishmael. Ishmael is not of the line of the covenant, but because Hagar has rejoined, we saw in chapter 16, rejoined Abraham and blessed him, so now God blesses her and through her, her son Ishmael. As far as Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget beget 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Then he finished talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. So God reaffirms his covenant, his special relationship with Abraham, and with Abraham's son, future son, through Sarah, who is not yet pregnant, though she be 90 years old. And with his descendants after him. And we see Abraham's response, returning once again to the topic of circumcision. Abraham's response at the end of the chapter, verses 23 to 27. So Abraham took Ishmael, his son, all who were born in his house, and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day, Abraham was circumcised and his son Ishmael and all the men of his house, born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner, they were circumcised with him. There is a lot that could be said about this text. Let's just make a a handful of observations as briefly as possible. First thing that we need to see is that there is one Abrahamic covenant. There is only one Abrahamic covenant. And I, and I say that because there are, there are some who look, they look at Genesis 15, which has all the hallmarks of being a covenant ceremony, 
and Genesis 17, which God is then confirming his covenant. And they say, look, this is two covenants that God is making with Abraham. And then there are others who will say, look, Genesis 15, it's got all the hallmarks. Yes, it it may appear it, but no, it's not a covenant. We don't see that word there. Therefore, it can't be the covenant. Genesis 17 is the covenant. The reason I say this is one covenant, Genesis 15, Genesis 17 are one covenant, where 15, it is initiated, and 17, it is confirmed, is because what we see in Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 7 to 8. Listen to me as I, as I read. We're the, we read these words. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. All right, so that's chapter 17 he's referring to. He brings, he chooses Abraham by, Abram by grace, brings him out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. And you might say, that's 12 where the covenant is promised. 17, he's giving him the name Abraham. That's the covenant confirmed. But then in verse 8, we read this. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. All of those people groups, you know, where their names sound like sort of something you might find remedied by some kind of medication. Are you a Girgashite? You need something for that. All of those people groups are mentioned in Genesis 15, at the end of Genesis 15. So you have Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 referred to in one passage, and he calls it the covenant. Not the covenants, but the covenant. So this is one covenant that God is making with Abraham. And the timing in this covenant is absolutely critical. Okay, It's it's massive for us. First, the thing that we need to see is that this, is, this covenant is only made after and not before Abraham believed in the Lord. That is, the, the, that is one of the Paul's major points there in Romans chapter 4. That this covenant God makes with Abraham after he has believed and not before. That is, God doesn't say, do this, abide by the covenant, obey, be faithful, be blameless, walk before me, do all these good things, and then I'll grant you righteousness. No. Abraham simply believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then, two chapters, but really what we read is it's, 10, 15, 20 years later, God makes with him the covenant. Had this been reversed, then our standing with God would be on the basis of how well we do, not on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And this makes all the difference. This is one of the most significant differences between what we see taught in the Bible and what is taught in so many other religions in our area in the world where they hope to approach their deity through, through ritual rites, that we can gain standing or perhaps righteousness on the basis of something we may do or something done to us, that if we will abide by the sacraments and if we will complete them, then and only then, then we might be able to have enough righteous to have good standing with God. And God says, no, that's not the way it works. You come to me through faith on the basis of grace alone. And on that basis, I give you righteousness. And then I will make a covenant with you. 
Our relationship with God isn't, isn't held together by how well you and I perform. If this afternoon, you men, go home or wherever you're going to go celebrate Father's Day with your parents. And, and while you're there, you know, everyone's hot dogs and hamburgers, whatever's being made on the grill, whatever you're eating, special meal, and you eat, you know, far too much. And then afterwards, you, someone is bringing out, you know, half gallons of ice cream. Half gallons, they don't make half gallons anymore. Like three quarters of a cup of ice cream. And, and you, you, you know, you love it. And so you, instead of coming with it with a small spoon and forget the bowl, honey, I love you. Where you know, I don't want to do dishes today. Let's, instead of that, I'll just eat it right out of the carton. And before you know it, it's gone. But it's Father's Day. It's okay. But tomorrow, you, you're going to feel it tomorrow. And so you decide, I got to get on the treadmill. I got to start walking. I got to start working this off. One mile, that's one hot dog. Two miles, that's that first three scoops of ice cream. Whatever math you're doing, you're working it off. You're trying to work it off. And, and, and then you can get back to what you want. You, your relationship with your weight, with your health, is based on how well you are doing. But that is not the way we relate to God. Before we ever get on the treadmill, we relate to God through faith alone. And that is how God makes his covenant with Abram. On the basis of his faith. Not on the basis of how well he does. And I want you to see, not only is, it, is the timing significant that it's after he believes. It's, it's also significant that this follows on the heels of chapter 16. I mean, in chapter 16, remember what happens there? Abraham, Abram and Sarai... They start conspiring together, led by Sarai. She's like, look, the promises of God have failed. Instead of, clearly, I'm now way past the age of having a child, let, let me give you my handmaiden, which we looked at last time. That was an ordinary practice in the ancient world. Totally appalling for us today. Ordinary for them. And so she does it, and in doing it, it is an act of faithlessness, and we saw the travesty that it brings about, the devastation to their home, to their relationship. It is a massive moral failure, not just because they don't trust the Lord, and she gets her husband to sleep with her handmaiden. That in and of itself is incredibly immoral. Not only that, but then once Hagar has a child, how does she and Abraham treat her? It is in an abusive, mean, disgusting way. And yet, despite all that, God still makes his covenant with Abraham and Sarah. Do you ever feel as if you are one step from being kicked to the curb by the Lord? As if you have failed him again and again and again. That have, you've almost, if not already, exceeded his mercy and grace to you. Don't get back on that treadmill. Look to Christ. Through whom God is gracious. 
Upon this moral collapse, we see God showing grace upon grace, guaranteeing this covenant, I will, I will, I will. And that's good news because if it depends on Abraham, he's in big trouble. He's in big trouble. This last thing that we see is that the timing of this is incredible because, it, because of what we see how old Abraham is. He is 99 years old at this time, knowing that God has just told him in the next year, sorry, at the next year, at this time, God is going to cause him uh, to be the father. His son will be born at that time next year. Abraham himself, when he hears this, is, he laughs in, in astonishment. How can this be? I am going to be, I'm pushing 100. Sarah, she's 90. Praise the Lord that when we reach 80s and 90s, we're not still worried about having kids. And yet they've had this promise and God says that he's totally blown away, which is why God starts this chapter off when, by saying, I am almighty God. The covenant isn't being fulfilled. The promises of God aren't founded and grounded and dependent on how strong Abraham is. Our relationship with God isn't ultimately dependent on how strong you and I are. It's not that we hold fast to him, but as we sing, he holds fast to us. God is the one who is almighty. He is the words here, the name that God gives, El Shaddai, the almighty one. You know, brothers and sisters, nothing has changed with our God. His, His power hasn't weakened over the years. He is no less almighty now than he was then. He has, because he is perfect in power, he cannot increase, he cannot decrease. Some of us, as we have gotten older, we have found, you know, remember when you were kids, you could sleep half on the bed, half on the floor, sleeping on the top of your head, and you would wake up fine. Today, you, all, you wake up sore if your head is turned the wrong way. I, I slept with my hand behind me. I can't feel my arm, you know? Oh, well. The Lord never has that. He never has a bad day. He never, he never weakens with power. He doesn't decrease. His power doesn't wax and wane. He is the Almighty One today. And His promises to you and to me they are as certain as they have ever been. And we can be sure of this, that God, what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3.20, that God is able to do far more than we can ask or even think. Not, not barely more, but abundantly more, far more. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, as he is called, the 19th century prince of preachers there in London. He became a a Baptist pastor. His parents were not Baptists. And his mother, who was a Christian, told him at one point, Spurgeon, Charles, I don't think she called him Spurgeon, Charles, I prayed that the Lord would make you a preacher. I just didn't pray that he would make you a Baptist preacher. 
Charles Spurgeon, who was a, a little bit, had a little bit of uh, humor to him. He responds like this. He says, Mother, don't you know that when God answers our prayers, he always does more than we pray for, never less? Brothers and sisters, God is absolutely sure to fulfill his promises to you. I don't care what has happened in our country or in the world. It doesn't, his power to you isn't established or made strong, nice days and comfortable afternoons. It doesn't depend on who's sitting in the Oval Office or in any other shaped office. It doesn't matter what is going on in China or Russia or any other power. The power of God, the promises of God are certain for those who trust in Christ. And I want you to see that this covenant that God has made with Abraham has a missional purpose. A missional purpose. The very first thing that God says to Abraham, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. That phrase, walk before me, is more than just you need to be obedient Whenever it is used of God, that God is walking before his people, it is used to describe his actions of guiding, protecting his people. But throughout the scriptures, whenever we see God uh, telling his people, you need to walk before me, what he is saying is, in essence, you are going to be my representatives to the world. It is as if he is covenanting in, in this covenant. He is establishing Abraham to be his representative to the nations. That Abraham and his line, his Isaac and all of Israel, exists to be a light to the world of what it looks like to be the people of God. So that the world may know and be attracted by it and seek to know this God through the people of Israel. This is why the land promise is so important. Because God, I mean, why does God put them in in this Canaan land? It's already occupied. They're going to have to fight for it when he does lead them to go for it. Why not a nicer place? Why not a a more remote region of the world where no one's there and they don't have to fight? Why not a nicer place? I'm sure Hawaii wasn't occupied yet. Southern California, I've heard, is nice. Pennsylvania. Why why not here? Why not Italy or Greece. Because there, that that little strip of land along the Mediterranean Sea, the, the southwest, you have Egypt, a massive superpower, and below it, all of Africa. To the east, you have major uh, empires, the Assyrian, the Babylonian Empire, and all of Asia and Asia Minor. And then to the, to the north and northwest, you have all of Europe. Here, for any of those superpowers to conduct trade or communicate with one another, they have to go through this little plot of land of, of Israel. God is establishing them on what some have called the the spine of the world there, the information center of the world. God is perfectly placing his people to be a light 
You know, God did not call us to be his people so that we could simply be cul-de-sacs of grace. He means for us to be highways of mercy. Which is why we as a church send and support missions. Why we pray for our missionaries. And why we ourselves must reach those around us. That the God of grace has called us to be his people. Not just so that we can know his mercy, but so that we that through us, he may shower that mercy on others. And this is why circumcision is so important to the Old Testament people. It, it marked them out as God's people. In that way, it, it is a sign that marks out who the people of God were under this old covenant. And in a way, it parallels what God calls us to as Christians under the new covenant to be baptized. It is the sign, baptism is the sign that we are part of the people of God in the new covenant. This is why God gives them the sign of circumcision and why he places them in the land. And one of the things that we see going forward is that this covenant makes, makes demands upon us. Walk before me and be blameless. He's not calling Abraham to be perfect, but he is calling him to be upright, to be honest, to be genuine. What we need to see is that when God calls us to be his own, he doesn't then intend for us to just live however we want. You've punched the Jesus ticket, you're safe, now go and live however you please. Trusting in Jesus isn't a box we check. Jesus himself said that if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Belonging to God isn't like belonging to Costco and having a membership there. You know, with Costco, you you can, as long as you pay your your yearly fee, they don't care whether you shop there or not, do they? No one's checking in with you, making sure that you're up, that you're shopping only at Costco. That you are upholding Costco standards of conduct in the rest of your life. They don't care. And in fact, if you, if you buy the membership yearly and you, you pay your dues and you never darken the door of Costco, they probably don't care that much. Sure, they would love it if you bought some things. It'd be nice for them. But they're not, they don't need that. As long as you've got that, that's good. That's not the way it is with Christ. God doesn't call us to be his people and then just say, hey, why don't you just go binge watch some TV? It's all right. Just live however you please. Do what you want. Trusting in Christ isn't like that. Fifth, the last thing we need to see is that the covenant is eternal. The covenant is eternal three times in this chapter. God calls this the everlasting, the eternal covenant. And there's a lot that we can say about this, but let me draw it down to this. That is, this is an eternal covenant with Abraham, first with Abraham and his offspring. On one level, it is clear that God is referring to the people, the ethnic people of Israel here. They're the descendants, the physical descendants of Abraham. They're the ones to whom this promise has come, and and they're the ones that we still look for these promises to be fulfilled to. 
Paul himself seems to indicate this in Romans chapter 11. From 9 to 11, Paul is talking about this very subject and arguing why there is a future, going to be a future restoration for the people of Israel where there is a massive turning to Christ. And he grounds it by saying in Romans eleven twenty eight to 29, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That is, they, you cannot, they cannot be revoked. The covenant is not given and then said, all right, no, sorry, can't, I'm taking it back. Paul is expecting that there will be a, a, a wide-scale turning conversion of the Jewish people back to the Lord by faith in Christ Jesus. But there is another level to this text that the New Testament also unpacks. It is that the people of Abraham are not only his physical descendants. In fact, in Romans 9, we we read these words, verse 5, not all Israel is truly Israel. That, That is, those who trust in God, those who by faith belong to God's people, those are true Israel. That is, even in our text, what we see over and over again, Abraham isn't promised to be the father only of Israel or one or two nations. He is to be the promised father of how many nations? Many, a multitude. That is, there is this expectation that there will flow from Israel, I'm sorry, flow from Abraham, multitude of nations, many kings, many leaders, many peoples. This is what we read in verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 16 of Romans chapter 14 earlier. That Abraham is the father of all who share his faith. And just as we see God making this promise here in Genesis chapter 17, that he will be this people's God, the descendants of Abraham, he will be their God. We find that same terminology picked up at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21. Where God promises, in verse 3 of chapter 21, God promises those who are with him in the new heavens and the new earth that he will be their God and they will be his people. That is, this, this promise which comes to Abraham and still in some way has lasting relations to the people of Israel, yet it is going to be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth through Christ Jesus. And it is not just the relation, not just promise of offspring, but also the promise of land. God gives them this land promise that they will have this land. And and this promise is repeated again and again throughout the Old Testament. Amos himself will argue for it. And while it is nowhere explicitly stated in the New Testament, I, I do think there are hints that we can find that this land will once again be returned to the people of Israel. But there is more to the land than this. Indeed, when David read for us earlier, Romans chapter 14, verse 13 we started with, and he he read these words. For the promise and his offspring, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be, I want you to notice this, he doesn't say heir of the land of Canaan, or of the promised land. He says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world 
did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So on one level, there is, on one view, a tightening up of the scope where this is referring to this land, this promised land for the people of Israel. But there is another way of looking at this promise that that takes in, it is far more expansive and big, that the promise of God to the people of Israel, to Abraham with his covenant and his people, is more than just one strip of real estate in the Mideast. It is expansive, it is large, and it is the new heavens and the new earth. This is why Paul, and these promises are fulfilled to us through Christ, which is why Paul will say in 2 Corinthians, all of the promises of God find their yes in him. That is, their yes and amen in Christ. Before we leave, let me just, I want to return to the theme, to the idea of circumcision, just briefly. If we can just double-click on it for a moment and, and, and try to wrestle with it and what, what the Lord is asking Abraham to do. This is a, a sign that is given only to the, the males of the people of Israel, the male descendants of Abraham. And I want us to see that from the very beginning, circumcision was never merely about a, an ethnic boundary marker of some kind, although it is that. But there is something else going on here. I mentioned briefly before that baptism is a parallel, but I want you to see it's just a parallel. Circumcision doesn't point to baptism. So if circumcision points to baptism, if circumcision is fulfilled by baptism, then just as Abraham was commanded and called to circumcise babies eight days old, so we would have to baptize babies. But nowhere in the New Testament is that connection made. In fact, when the two ideas are brought together, they're merely talked about as if they are parallel. They are never merely given this circumcision means or is fulfilled in this. It is never referred to that way. What circumcision from the very beginning meant to picture was not merely a physical right. It was was the need for a spiritual reality. From the very beginning in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, both Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 36, we are told that the people of Israel need to have their hearts circumcised. And in Jeremiah chapter 4, God says this, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, circumcise your hearts. That is what was needed was a, a spiritual change from the very inner part of our being. God is not saying you need open heart surgery, that someone has to peel something back. This is, this is a spiritual issue that needs to be resolved. What we need isn't just, isn't just a physical right done to us externally. What makes us the people of God isn't something merely that our parents do to us. It is something that God himself must do us do in us. This is exactly what Jesus is referring to in John chapter 3. When Nicodemus comes to him by night and asking him, how can I see the kingdom of God? How can anyone enter into the kingdom of God? And Jesus tells him the answer, you must be born again. 
Circumcision doesn't point to baptism. Circumcision points to the need for a new birth, for a heart change. And I'll ask you what Christ commanded of Nicodemus. Have you been born again? Not did you pray a prayer or walk an aisle or raise a hand or have some kind of religious experience or have someone pronounce blessings on you or have a religious leader tell you that your sins were forgiven. None of that matters. What I'm asking is what Jesus is commanding. Have you been born again? And the way that we may be born again is laid out there in John's gospel, verses 14 and 15, when Christ points Nicodemus to the example of Moses who raised up that serpent, that bronze serpent on the staff, raised it up in the wilderness, and he tells him, so must the Son of Man be raised up so that all who believe in him will have eternal life. We may have this new life. We may have this eternal life, the life of God, if we are born again and we have it through faith in Christ. That his work for you isn't merely just enough to cover your sin, but it is super abundant. Our sin is but a pebble, and God's grace through Christ is an ocean. What are you resting in today? Let it not be mere platitudes, let it not be mere feelings, let it not be mere some past event. Let it be Christ. Brothers and sisters, friends, you must be born again. If you want to know more about what that means, I'd encourage you this week, would you, after the service, talk to me. This week, Call me, text me. My number's there on the worship guide. I'd love to talk with you. We could set up a time where we could meet. I'll never forget when my own father walked me through and showed me how I could be born again. Are you born again? Let us trust and look to Christ alone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We have only scratched the surface of this text. There is so much here. Oh God, we pray that you will use my feeble lips to accomplish your eternally good purposes. You are our our almighty God and it is in you that we hope. Strengthen us this week that we may live out what you call us to. That the world may see our hope in Christ and ask that we may give a reason for the hope that is in us. We pray all this in your son's name, Jesus. Amen.